If you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of this new section in the book of Romans. It's an interesting section, interesting couple of verses that we're going to analyze this morning. But you'll notice it begins with, therefore, I urge you, brethren. And I think that is significant because that little challenge there, I urge you, brethren, to take the word of God and apply it to your life, absolutely refutes lordship salvation. You're not asked to submit your life. You're not asked to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're not asked to yield and surrender and subject yourself to anything connected to God to be saved, except to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what you're asked to do. After you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, now Paul, after he's already established the wonderful doctrine of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that entails, then he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, believers, not unbelievers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So after you have been saved, then you go to work on applying the scriptures to your life. And the Lordship Salvation gets all confused on this, and they just add stuff to salvation which doesn't exist. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a lot in those two verses, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of them and to the study of them later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we certainly, in light of this great passage of Scripture that you've inspired in your word, want to thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. We cannot ever thank you enough for having anything to do with us, frankly. We've sinned against you. We've fallen short of your glory, yet in amazing grace you've saved us and then you've given us your precious word so that we have the privilege after we believe in the Lord of blossoming and growing in our faith. And we thank you, Lord, that you just continue to be patient with us and merciful to us as we take this journey that we know as life. And we would ask, Lord, that you would... Uh, Continue to point us in ways that please you. Do that in our own individual lives, also in our worship. The thought that we could actually be pleasing to you, which is to be acceptable to you, which is stated in this very text, is quite staggering. What mercy, what grace that is that would permit us even to do that. We're living in a world, Lord, that tugs at us in many ways from multi-directions, and it tries to get us to conform to it. Our desire, O Lord, is not to do that. Our desire is to be transformed from it, and we pray that you would just allow your Holy Spirit to make us so sensitive to the scriptures and will of God that we are transformed in the way that we think. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for cleansing us. We ask that you would continue to renew our minds. We pray that you would continue to strengthen our faith. Take over our thoughts. Take over our words. Take over our actions. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting today. We especially think of the DeVries family and the Lalan family. We pray that you would grant your comforting grace to those 
family members who've lost loved ones, Lord, we pray that you would draw them close to you and into a sheltering type of peace that passes human understanding. Lord, we do pray for your grace and mercy. You've already given that to us. We pray you would continue to extend that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Suppose one of your children or your grandchildren came to you and said this to you. As of this moment, I'm putting my life totally and completely in your hands. You tell me what you want me to do, and I'm going to do it. I will do what you want me to do. Would you say to that child or your grandchild, Oh boy, now's my chance to get even for all the bad things you did. (laughs) Or would you say, Now it's my chance to give you some payback. Or would you say, Okay, You put in your life in my hands, you want me to make decisions that are best for you, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to help you. I'm going to direct you. I love you. There are going to be some things that we're going to get out of your life, and there's going to be some other things we're going to put into your life. But what I'm going to do, because I care about you, is I'm going to lead you into the way of great success. That is really what God wants for every one of his children. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you decide, I'm going to turn my life over to the Lord and I'm going to literally do what this text says, I'm going to present myself as a living sacrifice to God, God will never let you down and you'll never regret that. The fact of the matter is what God will do is he'll take your life He'll develop it for the glory of God. He'll use it, and you'll become the best possible you you could become. That's what Paul wanted when he begins this section in Romans chapter 12. When you come to this text in Romans, it really shows us how we should react to this amazing grace package that he's developed in the previous chapters that has saved us. In fact, in verse 1, he begins with a conjunction, therefore. We haven't seen that in a while in Romans. We saw it when we were going through that heavy doctrine section. Therefore, he would build upon that. He adds one right here. We haven't seen this for a while, but it sure is impacting here. It comes after the doxology. It comes after the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Romans. In the first 11 chapters, we've been given tremendous doctrine, astonishing doctrine connected to the gospel. But beginning in chapter 12, we're urged to let that doctrine affect you. Let that doctrine that you know that has saved you impact your life. In the first 11 chapters, Paul develops some doctrines that are amazingly deep, like our depravity. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Man, he lists a catalog of things in chapters 1 and chapter 2 that we've all failed, every single one of us. So he establishes that the whole world is guilty and accountable before God. Then he developed that faith grace thing. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by the pure grace of God. You are given the righteousness of God. You're given justification in which there's this judicial act of God in which he declares us righteous and he imputes to us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. We're given propitiation. He developed that. 
In the propitiation, Jesus Christ actually becomes the point where the wrath of God is appeased and he can meet with us because we have Christ in our life. And then God says, and I elected you. I elected you. I chose you into this. Just like I chose the nation Israel, I elected you as Gentile individuals. Now, those are not lightweight doctrines. Those are serious, sacred doctrines which are all wonderful parts of the grace package we receive when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is very clear to point out in the first verse of chapter 12, this package of God is by the mercy of God. In fact, he uses the plural noun mercies. He says this package has been wrought by the mercies of God. And this entire salvation grace package that has been given to us that includes all of those doctrines that we just mentioned have been rooted in the mercies of God. You know, the fact of it is, anything that we can have in a relationship with God stems from his mercy. Even the potential to please him stems from his mercy. It's where it all starts. It starts with grace and mercy, then you go forward from there. And by the way, we already have the mercy. So we're not working to earn the mercy. We've already received the mercy. We're going on from that point. Now this is not the word that is normal that's used for mercy here. The normal word that's used for mercy is eliao in Greek. That particular word stresses the fact that God reaches out to pitiable people. People that are undeserving. People who are helpless and hopeless. That's the emphasis of the word eliao. The particular word that's used here in Romans 12.1 is one that not only has him reaching out to helpless and hopeless people, but it also specifically emphasizes he has compassion on people. So this is not just the physical action or the spiritual action of helping the hopeless. It's God actually saying, I am merciful and I've been giving you my mercy because I'm compassionate toward you. And we cannot even begin to fathom how many merciful and compassionate things God has done for us in our lives. I mean, in his compassion, he has given us provisions. In his compassion, he's given us protection and possessions. And most of all, we can't calculate it when it comes to salvation. All of these things that we've experienced has come from a compassionate heart of a compassionate God. Now, the chronology of where this admonition sits in Romans is important because he urges people who are believers in Jesus Christ to now make applications in view of the mercies of God so that we may discover what God's perfect, acceptable will is. That's what he's challenging the people to do. And I want you to notice Paul doesn't say, I command you by the mercies of God. He says, I urge you by the mercies of God. It's a tender word. Parakaleo, it's a tender word. Paul says, I'm coming alongside you to encourage you to, on the basis of the mercies of God, to apply what I'm about to say. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said, this is the language of grace. It's not the language of legal law. I'm not demanding this. I'm urging you to do this. And anything that we can do for God is never based on works we can do. It's based on his mercy. That's the chronology of this. Paul establishes that we've experienced the mercy of God before the works. And that's where this thing gets all goofed up. 
Because most people, especially religious people, think that they can somehow work and attain to the mercy of God. That's their view. We do enough good works and we do enough things that are religious and somehow we'll be able to tap in to the grace and mercy of God. Paul says, now you're backwards in your thinking here. You already have the mercy of God. The mercy of God is when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of the fact that you have the mercies of God, that you've experienced that, now you go to work on applying it to your life. So what Paul writes here as he begins this incredible next few chapters is because of the fact that God has mercifully and compassionately saved us, we should be prompted to live our lives in such a way that we discover God's perfect will. When our congregational meeting was held this past Wednesday and Mr. Kelly was giving an overview of his doctrine class, he said, sound doctrine produces sound lives. I was taught that, I taught him that, he teaches you that. Sound doctrine produces sound lives. No doctrine, and you'll certainly see it when we go through this today, no doctrine is just cold and empty. I mean, people say, we don't want deep doctrine, we just want practical stuff. Deep doctrine is practical. Deep doctrine is very practical. It's deep doctrine that produces this kind of commitment. It's deep doctrine that produces this kind of life. You have to have right theology or you can't please God. You have to have right theology. You can't accomplish the perfect will of God in your life. That's what Paul's developing here. And think for a moment about the merciful, compassionate things that God has revealed to us in Romans. I grafted you in individually to a national program with Israel. You talk about mercy. If you know Jesus Christ today, you've been grafted in by God to a program individually that is a national program with Israel. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous in the court of God. He's made a judicial declaration from all of your sins. We weren't even aware of this when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't know this court case was taking place. That's mercy of God. He took us out from under the Old Testament law. You're no longer under the law, you're under grace. You no longer govern your life by picking a few commandments out of the Old Testament law, you're under grace. He did that. That's the mercy of God. He gave us the living Holy Spirit to live in us so that by his classification, we're no longer classified as being in the flesh, but we're classified as being in Christ. We're classified as being in the Spirit. That's the mercy of God. Then he individually chose us and elected us just like he did nationally for Israel. And then if you remember, before he got into this lengthy discussion concerning our connection to Israel, he said, nothing can separate you ever from the love of Jesus Christ or the love of God. All of those things are deep theology. All of those things stem from the mercy and compassion of God. And the result of that theology is that there should be a desire for us to want to accomplish God's perfect will for our lives. So we now enter in Romans what we could call, I guess, the practical part of the book, but I don't necessarily think I've even worded that right because the whole doctrinal part's practical. It's the whole theology that leads to the practical part. And there are two parts to yourself that you have to develop if you're going to fulfill the perfect will of God for your life, and so do I. One of them is our bodies, 
And the other one is our minds. Both of them are necessary if we're going to develop to accomplish God's perfect will. There's an old Bible teacher who used to be a real student of Lewis Ferry Chafer. His name was Ray Stedman. And Ray Stedman, when he looked at these two verses, said, Right here is the formula to avoid a wasted life. And once you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can waste your life. Or you can discover God's will for your life. But if you're going to discover God's will for your life, the perfect will for your life, it'll take a requirement of analyzing what's going on in my body. It will take an analysis of what's going on in my mind. There are three perfect will requirements that are spelled out here. First of all, we're to present our bodies as a sacrifice. Look at verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. A victorious spiritual life starts with what you're doing in your body. Starts with what I'm doing in my body. That gets at the root level of this, the ground level of this. It starts with what we're doing with our body. And what Paul says is, is I want you, by the mercies of God, in light of all of the mercies of God that you've experienced, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And the word sacrifice is one that means we're to view our bodies as an active offering and sacrifice to the Lord. We are to view ourselves as something very sacred and solemn in the sight and in the presence of God. And the verb present, your bodies, is an aorist, what I would call ingressive or initiative, which means it's a point of time action, but in light of what he says, there could be various points of time where this is done, where you take a look at your body at a point in time and say, what am I doing? What am I doing? There are decisive moments, if we're going to please the Lord, if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish here, where we have to make assessments of, what am I doing with my body? This is, by the way, not something you publicly do at church. That's why I don't think altar calls work. I've never believed in altar calls. They don't work, because people can go forward in front of other people in some type of emotional response to something. I mean, I'm sure if we had Madeline play a bunch of music, we begged people long enough, somebody would walk up here. That doesn't mean they're doing honest business themselves. It just means they're emotionally moved to do something here at church. But Paul says, no, no, you have to analyze yourself, and you have to analyze what you are doing privately in your own life with your body. Now, our bodies change. I'll ask Mary, do I look old and fat? <laughs> of course, she'll go and tell me the truth. She'll go, oh, no, no. In fact, I'll ask some of you later. You tell me. I can take the truth. It doesn't affect me. But our bodies change. We get old. We put on weight. Our looks change. Our hair color changes. In fact, the truth of the matter is our bodies deteriorate. But Paul said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the commitment you have to God and his word 
with your body. That should intensify. So it's not just speaking about how the body looks. It's what the body's doing. And there are three adjectival ways that he describes the way that we are to present our bodies. First of all, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I want to again point this out because I think this is so clear. Most people in religion do sacrificial things because they think it's going to help them obtain mercy. Most people in religion do all kinds of sacrificial stuff, some of it bizarre, because they think it's going to tap them into grace. No, that's not how this works. Godly people do sacrificial things because they already have the mercy. They've already experienced the grace. That's what's prompting them to do that. And Paul says we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are to have a vibrant relationship with God that affects what we do in our bodies. Now, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were offered, and he didn't have to say living sacrifices because they were all dead. Any sacrifice that ever was done in the Old Testament economy was an animal that was taken, quite frankly, contrary to its own volition. You didn't see some animal just walk up voluntarily and say to the priest, go ahead, I'm the sacrifice. I mean, you've really only seen one person who ever did that. That, of course, was Jesus Christ. He said, go ahead, I'm the sacrifice. But you didn't see that in those other instances of Old Testament sacrifice. So what Paul is basically saying here is you present yourself, you present your body as a sacrifice, and you need to do that as a living sacrifice. And the problem we have with this and the threat that we have with this is if you're a living sacrifice, you can crawl off the altar. There's no guarantee you're going to stay in the sacrificial condition because you're alive. You have the option. I can either stay in a commitment or not. But what Paul says is we're to present ourselves continually alive in our relationship with God, and we are to do that in our bodies. We are to continue to grow and develop, and we're not to be stale and stagnant in our spiritual life. And I honestly think what Paul is stressing here, you have to check yourself what you're doing with your body. What are you looking at with your eyes? We gave you that challenge. It'll be a year this October, a couple months. We're a couple months away from the challenge. Go one year without setting one unclean thing before your eyes. That's a tough challenge. You have to have that clicker in your hands. Something comes on, you've got to turn away, you've got to turn the channel. I mean, that takes discipline. That takes discipline in the world in which we live. But it can be done. And once one has completed a year, then it gets easier and easier, and it becomes a habit, it becomes a pattern of life, and you're checking your eyes. What am I looking at? What are you saying with your tongue? What's your speech saying? I hope nothing evil's coming out of your mouth. What are you doing with your hands? Where are you going with your feet? I mean, if we're going to present ourselves a living sacrifice, we have to be willing to ask ourselves those kinds of questions and say, well, what am I doing with my body in those areas? That's exactly what Paul said. In light of the mercies of God, 
in light of all of the mercies and compassion that God has given to you. You just present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You need to make these adjustments and these changes continually. And if a believer is not doing that, they're still a believer. Boy, they're going to miss out on what could have been. They're going to miss out on the perfect will of God for their lives. So, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Present your bodies a holy sacrifice. He says that next. A holy sacrifice. In other words, God wants his people, not having blemishes or defect in their lives, things they've done in their body that would make them defective or blemished. It's an interesting word. The word means we're to have such a reverence for the Lord that we set ourselves apart so that with our bodies we're pursuing what's pure and righteous. That's what Paul wants. We're not after things that are corrupt. We're not using our bodies to go after things that are evil and sinful. And Paul says, if you want to accomplish God's perfect will for your life, you have to have this awesome view of God, and then you pursue what's pure. You pursue what's righteous. And thirdly, present your body an acceptable sacrifice to God. Acceptable to God. An offering that's acceptable to God means that what I'm doing in my body meets his standards. We have to be willing to give up the right to ourself and say, it doesn't matter what my body looks like. What does matter is what my body's doing. And I'm going to make sure that my body is doing that which is acceptable to God. And Paul said, in view of the mercies of God, that's your spiritual service of worship. In fact, it's an interesting word here. It's only logical and reasonable. In view of all of the mercies of God, it's only logical and reasonable that you'd want to serve God with your body, for goodness sakes. You wouldn't want your body out there in sinful crud. I mean, if you want to find out the perfect will of God for your life, you can't take your body and get involved in dirty stuff. Because you'll never discover the will of God if you're doing that. And I don't think it's possible to ever accomplish God's perfect will, quite honestly, without the church, because the church is his body. So there needs to be a sense in which God's people take the word of God and the church of God seriously. You know, when you talk to a jet pilot, he'll tell you, you have to check instruments continually. In fact, you got to talk one time with Mo Hovius about that experience he had where he actually was flying a jet and he lost his sight because he was flying too high without oxygen. It's an amazing story. But a pilot is constantly checking the instrument panel. They have to make sure I'm going the right direction here. They just don't wing it up there. They continually check things. Paul says that's what you need to do. You want to discover God's perfect will for your life, then you continually check the scriptures. Analyze what you're doing with your body. Analyze what you're doing. See that you're going in the right direction, a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. There's requirement number one. Requirement number two is don't be conformed to the world. Verse two And do not be conformed to this world. 
I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I just want you so grounded in grace and mercy that you basically are appalled by lordship salvation because this again refutes the concept of lordship salvation being a possibility because it is possible to be a believer and be conformed to this world. So you would be a believer who's not really following as a disciple the Lord, as they would put it in their vernacular, which I don't even agree to that, but that's what they would say. But it is possible in light of this challenge to be conformed to the world because Paul said, in light of the mercies of God you've experienced, don't do that. There is nothing that will destroy you or destroy a church faster than conformity to this world because it will not lead to the blessings of God either in the individual or in the church and the verb don't be conformed is present middle imperative which means it's to be a continual action of our life the choice is one that we make in and of ourselves middle voice and it's a command of God imperative mood So if we want to accomplish God's perfect will for our lives, we must make sure we're not continually being conformed to this world. You know, I go to bed early on Saturday nights, real, real early. And I get up real early. I got up at 3 this morning. I'm having a cup of coffee, reading scriptures, thinking through things. I mean, that's what I did this morning. And when I go to go to bed, usually it's getting pretty dark. And when I walk into our bedroom, I'm going from light to darkness, and it's like all of a sudden when I first get there, I can't see things right. So I'll stub my foot on the bed, and I don't really say praise the Lord when I do that, by the way. (laughs) I've got something lying there on the floor, a little satchel, and I may kick that thing, but what I've discovered is when I'm in that dark place long enough, my sight begins to adapt to it. Then it takes a few minutes, but the longer I'm in that dark place, I mean, it's almost like the room's lit up. That's what people can do in the world as a believer. They can get out there in the world and they look at it and they go, it's dark. I don't belong here. But the longer they fool around with it, they soon begin to adapt to it. And when they begin to adapt to it, They're missing God's will for their lives. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. It's a rare word. Don't give in to the schemes. In fact, our English word schemes comes from this. Don't give in to the schemes of the world. It's the same word that Peter used when he said, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust. Don't fashion yourself like the world. Don't see how near you can be to looking like and acting like them. This is a wicked, evil, idolatrous, immoral, corrupt world. Everything in this world system is designed to move you away from God. There is a concept of education and success and morality. There's a concept of money and music and movies and politics and arts and amusements that are all distorted, they're dark. They don't care what the Word of God says. They're not interested in that. And you hang around that stuff long enough, it can begin to affect you. 
So Paul says, don't hang around that stuff. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the way and direction of the world, the way it has always been. And don't be conformed to the way and the direction of the world that is presently is. The world's the same. You don't conform yourself to that. In fact, it's interesting to me that he uses the word age in this for the now age. Don't conform to the now age. So it covers all the ages. So what Paul is basically saying here is it doesn't matter if you're living in the first century or you're living in 2023, it's applicable for a believer who's in the world at any time. Do not be conformed to the world. But then he says in the third prerequisite, be transformed by your mind renewal. In verse 2, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, most people, hear me well on this. Most people govern their lives by their emotions and their feelings. I'm talking about most Religious people. And it doesn't matter how unbiblical, illogical, or irrational it may be. Most people govern themselves by the way they feel. Somebody that's an award winner for God won't operate like that. Godliness in grace... Godliness that has a grace focus on the mercies of God is rational, it's intellectual, it's focused on mind and heart. We are not to be conformed to this world. We are to have a mind that is being conformed and transformed by God's word. And you need to understand this. This is so critical. Success in your relationship with the Lord is based on your knowledge and your mind. It's not based on the sensational experiences or emotional experiences. That's where people just get all confused. They're not learning sound doctrine. They're not growing in the truth of God. They're all emotional. They're religious. They have a feel-good to them. And God says, no. Paul says, no. That's not how you accomplish the perfect will of God. You accomplish the perfect will of God by a transformed mind. The devil wants to misinform your mind. The world wants to conform your mind. Education in this world wants to inform your mind. Religion wants to preform your mind. Society wants to reform your mind, and the flesh of yours wants to deform your mind. God's grace is, I want to transform your mind. I want to transform your mind. I think one of the greatest compliments that's given to this ministry, at least this is the way I view it, and those of you that are connected to this ministry, is you know, when you go there, it's like they're studying at school or something. I love hearing that. Why? Because we're after minds. Minds. And that's where people really develop and grow. And Paul again chooses to use that present tense middle voice imperative mood verb. 
We're to be continually transformed. We're to make a choice in and of ourselves to be transformed, and we're commanded by God to be transformed. We are to have a metamorphosis in our thinking. We are to, as it were, refigure and reprogram our minds. And how do you do that? You focus on a renewal that comes from the Word of God. See, the Bible is not just a book of information, although there's a lot of information in the Bible. It's a book of mind transformation. And to actually become a person who achieves the perfect will of God for their lives requires a continual mind renewal. It's a mindset. And by the way, it's interesting to me that the renewing word talks about brand new. So we're talking about you take someone who's experienced the mercy of God and they go to work on studying the scriptures. They're developing brand new thoughts. They're developing brand new views. They're developing brand new perspectives that are all in conformity with the word of God. God wants our minds to be transformed from what they were and what they are into becoming a type of mind that thinks logically, rationally, biblically, and spiritually and right that is conformed to the word of God. You know, I'm disturbed, and I don't want to offend anybody here. But if it does, I won't back away from it either. But I don't want to do it. I don't want to offend anybody. But I'm disturbed from people who go to the world counselors to help them develop their minds. Counselors that don't give a hoot about God. They don't give a hoot about the word of God. But they're going to go and counsel with them, or they go to some medication. Yeah, that's where I'm going to get help with my brain. I'm going to get help with my mind on medication. Listen, the thing that transforms your mind is you focus on the mercy of God and then you go to work on understanding the word of God in a way that's rational, intellectual. It's a use of mind, not some emotional giddiness. And to be honest with you, I don't put, and I don't want to offend the Christian counseling world either, but I don't put a lot of stock in some of the things that Christian counselors do either because somebody says, well, I'm going to a Christian counselor. That doesn't mean anything to me. Because most of those Christian counselors were trained by worldly counselors. Now, if they're a biblical counselor... And they're interested in actually what do the scriptures say so that we can have a discussion here of what you actually need to do to transform your mind. Yeah, I can go for that, but that isn't what's happening. And I hope you're growing. I hope your mind's developing new thoughts, new things as we go through these books of the Bible. I hope you're thinking, hey, what I was previously taught was wrong. That's good. Or you're looking at a text of scripture and you're listening to someone who's talking about who knows what and you go, that teaching is inaccurate. That's good. Because what that tells you is your mind is being transformed. And God says, I want your minds transformed into thinking differently. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to present your body a living sacrifice, if you're willing to not be conformed to this world, if you're willing to be transformed by the renewing your mind on the will of God for results, result number one, you will prove. 
what God's will is for you. God has a will for you. He saved you. If you know Jesus Christ, he saved you. He's got a will for you, a purpose for you. And our desire should be, man, I want to know that. I want to understand that. How do I get there? Three prerequisites. You'll know God's will. Secondly, you'll prove what God's good will is. That is so great to read that. You'll prove what the will of God is, that which is good. Know that about God. God will always do what's good in your life. You purpose to apply those three prerequisites that we've gone through this morning that Paul has laid out in this text, and you will discover God's good will for your life. You'll discover it morally, ethically, and spiritually. It'll all be good. And you'll prove what God's acceptable will is for you. Good and acceptable will. Now this is amazing grace. Here's the mercies of God here. God says, I'll actually allow you, as you are living your days on that earth, I will actually allow you to accomplish my acceptable will that I accept for you in your life. And you'll discover the perfect will for you. Your life will be complete. Lack nothing. A totally committed life and mind will discover the will of God. So let's go back to the opening illustration. You're a child. You go to your heavenly father. You say, hey, you know what? I'm going to turn my whole life over to you. You take it. You direct it. You give me growth. You use it. You do that privately and personally. You don't do that publicly. You do that privately and personally. And God will bless you, do good things for you, and use you. May we pray. I'm not going to try to manipulate anything here on this. I'll just tell you this. You have three prerequisites to go to work on. We all do. Present your body a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You go to work on those this week. See what the Lord will do. Father, thank you for your precious word. We pray that you would allow this plethora of mercies to affect the way we think and the way we live. Keep us from being people who do dirty things with our bodies, our minds, our eyes, our hands, say things through our lips that aren't right. Keep us from that. And also, Lord, I pray that you would continue to develop our minds that we're not given to the emotional, the irrational, the sensational, the religious insanity that is out there. I pray we'd be zeroed in on growing until we see the Savior face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.